Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're gonna to dive deep into omega-3 fats with one of the leading experts, Dr. Bill Harris. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Joe, great to be with you. So uh, I suspect many people know who you are, but there's probably more who don't. So I think you would be best qualified to provide us with your long standing history in this area and what, you, what you've done in your journey to, to achieve the level of prominence you have in this field. Well, that's kind of you. Um, just happened to get on the right horse at the right time. I think that's the way it worked out. Uh, yeah, my background is uh, in nutrition, uh, a PhD in nutrition from University of Minnesota. Uh, and then around 1980, I got uh, involved with omega-3 research when I did my postdoctoral fellowship with Dr. Bill Connor in uh, Portland, Oregon. And that's when we <clears throat> started studying the effects of, of salmon oil on uh, blood cholesterol levels. It was really our primary interest at the time. And uh, it turned out that that's just about the time that the, uh, the Eskimo studies had been reported from the Greenland uh, physicians, Dr. Dyerberg and Bang, and they found omega-3s were really helpful uh, for cardiovascular disease. And we were just getting into it from a lipid and lipoprotein area and platelet studies, uh, blood clotting studies. So it uh, turned out to be a very, very productive field. And uh, it's been, I've been blessed to be part of it ever since. And where, where are you at now? What are you doing? Um, now I'm in, at the University of uh, South Dakota School of Medicine, and I, um, <clears throat> that's where I'm on faculty, but I'm primarily a, a researcher at what, I, what we, we formed about three years ago called the Fatty Acid Research Institute, uh, where we uh, collect a, a variety of specialists, work together uh, primarily in epidemiological studies, studies looking at the relationship between blood omega-3 levels and risk for certain disease outcomes, whether it's death or cancer or heart disease or kidney disease or whatever. So we're trying to build a case that omega-3 levels in the blood are as, if not more important than knowing your cholesterol level, at least as important uh, when it comes to uh, your, your health and being able to control it. So when you say in the blood, I would assume you're meaning not the serum, but the red blood cells, membranes? Right. That's, yeah. thought we'd get into that later. But the, right, in pr principle, the, the test that we developed about 20 years ago was called, is a red blood cell membrane-based omega-3 test called the omega-3 index. Uh, and that's the amount of EPA and DHA, the two long-chain omega-3s that are in uh, marine sources, the amount of EPA and DHA in red cell membranes expressed as a percent of the total fatty acids in the membrane. So that we thought was absolutely the best way to assess your body's omega-3 status. And so we've been using that ever since. I'm sure you've done, but I, I, I'm not aware of it. And if I did, if I was, I forgot it. Um, have you done correlation studies, studies with this, with tissue analysis, like the liver or other organs to see how well that correlates? 
Yeah, we uh, early on we did it with the heart. We were able to get human heart tissue uh, from um, <clears throat> heart transplant patients, actually. Uh, and we were able to show that the omega-3 level in the red blood cell was a good reflection. At least it, it correlated well with the heart. It's It's been done in, in a variety of other tissues since that time. Uh, of course, you could do that in animals more readily than humans uh, because you can't get at most solid organs in humans without, uh, unless you're at autopsy. Uh, but in all cases, I think the, the place where it, it doesn't reflect as well as the brain. The brain is a very highly specialized and protected organ. Um, we do know the DHA levels in the brain are very important for, for health, but whether you can as an adult uh, change your brain omega-3 content by taking supplements or eating more fish, that's still an open question. Yeah, it's an important question because yeah, from all perspectives, we all appear to be fatheads because I think I believe I, you would probably know is the concentration of fat in the brain is like 80%. Yeah. If you look at right, lipids writ, writ large, right there, there's so many membranes and membranes are made up mostly of lipids. So that's the brain is very much a lot of fat. All right. Well, let's get back to the test you developed because, and then of course we're going to dive deep into omega threes. I didn't really, really looking forward to this because, um, not omega-3, but omega-6 has become an absolute passion of mine uh, because I believe in an excess. It is in 99.999% of the public. It leads to devastating impacts on health. So there, it, it result, many people believe that they can balance the omega-6, omega-3 ratio, and that would provide benefit. And we can certainly dialogue on that. But, but you know, there's some, some big question marks in my mind, at least, that that's not going to be quite as effective as lowering the linoleic acid content. So why don't we go into the ratio? And, you know, you've discussed that it's a pretty good reflection of what's in your body tissues. We don't know the brain yet. Uh, although it's surprising in all this time, the 50 years you've been working on this, that they haven't been able to do animal studies to come to some conclusion on that. Yeah, well, they do animal studies. It's just they don't typically do it in fully grown adult rats mice uh, and do feeding studies that give reasonable amounts. It's, it's, it's so easy in animal studies to give hyper omega-3 doses, huge doses that are physiologically almost irrelevant for humans because you can't eat that much. Um, but experimenters can you know, manipulate the diet like crazy with animals. Um, so it, what's missing is the human data. Uh, but we can yeah, talk about the, the, the omega-3 index, again, that's EPA and DHA, is a, a good reflection of most of the other organs. And your typical, you, one nice thing about it, it responds very well to increased intake of EPA and DHA, like a good biomarker should. Um, and it's been linked, <clears throat> higher, higher levels have been linked to better health across the board, uh, variety of disease conditions. So uh, I think it really is meaningful. So what are some of the deep meanings you can extract from uh, finding out these results? Well, the way, I guess it's probably easy to back up and say how we do these studies uh, that we're primarily focusing on in the omega-3, uh, excuse me, in, in Fatty Acid Research Institute. Because what we do is we uh, access data and there, there are, there are 
just hundreds and thousands of data data sets out out there. Uh, people who have uh, done studies over the years who have uh, the classic study is uh, epidemiologic studies, as you all know, the Framingham study. Uh, Framingham uh, is a suburb of Boston, and back in the 1940s. Um, Men particularly were uh, just falling dead from heart attacks at, at, at fairly early ages. Nobody knew why. Uh, thought it was genetic, maybe just didn't know what it was. Um, and that was pretty much the impetus for starting this population-based. Let's recruit a bunch of presumably healthy men and women uh, in a town and just and measure everything we can in their blood and their diet and their lifestyle. And then just watch them over time and see who develops heart attacks. Well, that's kind of the beginning of cardiovascular epidemiology. And what they discovered in that first Framingham group uh, was that uh, looked like uh, was a, uh, people who had uh, high blood pressure were the guys who were dying of heart attacks. Guys who had high cholesterol were dying of heart attacks. Guys who smoked were having heart attacks. And so we kind of they kind of developed this concept of a risk factor uh, that we can we are so familiar with now uh, but that was something that kind of came out of the early Framingham studies so anyway that cohort was recruited in the 40s they're all dead uh, but in the 1970s uh, their offspring were recruited into the same kind of study it's called the Framingham offspring study and it's in that study that we measured the omega-3 index in blood samples that had been stored and what uh, year did that start? What year did that start? That started in the mid seventies. We didn't we didn't get um, at so so they get together or uh, they see these people about every four years, roughly, to follow up who's who's developing what diseases, et cetera, et cetera. So in the early two uh, thousands was an exam, Framingham offspring exam, where they drew blood and they stored red blood cells, and. It was those red blood cells that we were able to get a hold of and measure the omega-3 index in. And so we have been then doing studies asking the question. And the people, on average, were about 65 at the time that blood was drawn in the early 2000s. Um, and so we are able to ask the question, if, you're, <clears throat> if you have a high or low omega-3 index at that age, does that predict any disease outcomes? And yes, it does. It predicts risk for Alzheimer's disease. It predicts risk for heart disease. It predicts risk for death from any cause. And higher levels of omega-3, people live longer. Uh, and so it's, we've been able to do, so that's a microcosm of the kinds of studies we work on with at Fatty Acid Research Institute because there have been 50 or 60 Framingham-type studies all around the world. Uh, started for different reasons, started by different investigators, but they almost all have saved blood and they've measured omega-3 levels. And so we have a coalition now. This is actually a group that's organized out of Tufts University. Dr. Mozafarian uh, started this thing. Um, and this, this is a coalition of studies like the one, the Framingham, like I discussed. And we put all this data together from 50, 60, 70,000 people uh, linking omega-3 levels in the blood to different outcomes. And so we've been publishing with that group for some time uh, and finding, uh, again, that higher omega-3 just across the board is just a signal for better health.
So let's get into the details. When you say the omega-3 index, is this the percentage of omega-3s, which would be, is it, and it's, it, are the omega-3s just qualified as e, EPA and DHA or are you using other omega-3s in there? Just and EPA is this, and DHA. Yeah. Just EPA and DHA, which is, are the primary ones, of course, but there are others. There are um, others. The, is that the percentage of the total lipids in the membrane or is it, I would assume yeah. that's the case. Okay. That's, right, so that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward. Okay. Yeah. And then, but the, because there's another confounding index or ratio that's commonly described, which I don't think you're a fan of, but I, I certainly could be mistaken, which is the omega 63 ratio. Yeah, I, I, I would say I'm less of a fan of that than I am of the omega-3 index. And I've got a few reasons, of course. Um, one is it's not very precise. It doesn't, as you, as you alluded to, now, there are more omega-3 fatty acids than just EPA and DHA. There's DPA, there's ALA. And when you say omega-3 writ large, you don't know which omega-3s you're talking about. So that's a problem. Plus, you don't know which omega-6 fatty acids. There are about seven of them in the blood. Um, the principal ones are linoleic acid and arachidonic acid, but there's a bunch of other ones. Uh, and so when you say omega-6, omega-3, you don't really know what the denominator is and what the numerator is. And it presumes that all the omega-3s behave the same, have the same health benefits, and all the omega-6s have the same health benefits or detriments, um, which is really not true. That's not very nuanced um, in my view, uh, because we've seen some studies where a higher, some omega-6 fatty acids are uh, apparently good. They're associated with better outcomes, whereas others are not. So to pull them into one metric where you don't know how it's made up is, I mean, that's one of the, another reason I don't like it. I guess the third one is you can have a high level of omega-6 and a high omega-3 or low omega-3 and low omega-6 and have exactly the same ratio. And it's really the amount that's there, I think, that's the most important. To me, what we're missing in America and in the West in general is we're lacking the long-chain omega-3s. That's the biggest problem. Um, and I, I hate to distract from that problem by digging into the omega-6 side of it. Uh, by Because some people could say, well, I can fix my ratio just by eating less omega-6 and, and not increasing my omega-3. And I don't think that's going to help. All right. Well, the, the counter argument to that would be that there are a set of enzymes, uh, desaturases and elongases, that take the baseline essential fats, essentially, the, the uh, ALA typically, or the linoleic acid and converts them to the longer chains that is an EP and an EP and DHA, the 20 and 22 chains carb or 22 carbons. So the argument is that if you're overwhelming the system with these omega sixes, you essentially monopolize those enzyme systems and, and there's the availability to the omega three precursors for the higher level, higher order uh, fats is almost eliminated because it's overwhelmed. But if you're talking about actually consuming the preformed long chain omega threes, then that and is it's not an issue, of, right? It's not an issue, right? But um, but stream, they're, they're, right? I know you're going to say there's other enzymes downstream that are take the long chains, and arachidonic competes with those, and that's true. Um, but I, there are there's certain metabolites of even arachidonic acid that are 
beneficial. Anti-inflammatory, lipoxin A for one, for one uh, is, is beneficial. And there are metabolites of linoleic acid itself non that don't go through arachidonic that have or at least beneficial relationships with blood pressure and inflammation things like that so it's it's a much more complicated system i think than just omega-6 is bad omega-3 is good it's just much more nuanced than that yeah okay so do you report the omega uh, the six to three ratio in your omega-3 index that's, that's yeah that's one of the reports that's available from uh, omega quant yeah okay yeah, so, so even have, though you yeah, I mean, we, we, we have a basic test. It's just the omega-3 index, and mm -hmm. that's what you get. Uh, and then the next step up is an omega-3 index plus omega-6 omega-3 ratio because a lot of people like it. You know, mm -hmm. they don't have to. We'll give them what they want. <laughs> I don't have to like it. All right, you don't put any disclaimers on the test when you send in the report. Oh, I, um, we just say here's what's normal. Here's what we think uh, the evidence would say is a, is a good ratio. I still like to make the way to fix a bad ratio. I think we say this in the report. The primary way to improve a, uh, a bad omega-6, omega-3 ratio is to increase your EPA and DHA intake. Because that's what I think. That, that's the action that follows. That will fix any ratio if you do that. All right. And uh, we'll get into details of that because that's where it's important. Uh, but, but before we do why don't you provide the supposition as to why omega-3s are so beneficial for health? Uh, well, I mean, we do uh, provide information about the benefits of omega-3. No, 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 I'm just, no, I'm just to our audience now, let us know. Or what, so, summarize, summarize, summarize what are the primary benefits from your, from your long-standing multi-decade career in this, this field? Yeah. Uh, so why are omega-3s beneficial? Good question. Uh, it's, and it's a uh, multi-pronged answer because omega-3s are so important across multiple systems. So the first thing we knew about omega-3s was they, actually the first thing we knew about from the Eskimo studies was they made the blood, what we'll, we call it thin the blood. It made the, your blood less likely to clot uh, in, in the wrong places. Now, obviously, we want our blood to clot at the right times, but when it clots at the wrong time, you've got a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, and omega-3s help prevent that inappropriate blood clotting um, via a complicated mechanism of how they affect the blood platelets and things like that. Uh, second thing was it lowered triglyceride levels. Serum triglycerides are the second, the second lipid in the blood that doctors typically look at. Cholesterol is the first. Then they look at triglycerides, and omega threes were uniquely effective at lowering blood triglycerides. Does it does it lower them more effectively than omega six? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, omega six will lower triglycerides. Well, it won't it won't lower triglycerides pretty much at all. Uh, omega threes are the ones that do that. Okay. Um, next thing that came along really was I think a. a Blood pressure lowering effect had good effects on the vascular, the blood vessel lining that made it more healthy. So it would relax better, which had an effect on blood pressure. Uh, so a little bit of a blood pressure lowering effect. And then the, the big, I think now the gorilla in the room, was it an elephant? It's the, the, the primary mechanism most of us think about is anti-inflammatory. The omega-3s uh, have multiple prongs of anti-inflammatory effects. 
um, in, as they reside in the membrane and once they're released from the membrane, they become anti-inflammatory molecules. Uh, so that's, those are really the big four, um, I think we'd say. Do you think they play any role in membrane physiology, specifically in mitochondrial membranes? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, they do appear to help the mitochondrial membrane uh, process the energy. Of course, the mitochondria is the energy producing uh, organelle in the cell. Uh, and <clears throat> there's some pretty good evidence, although it's not been studied extremely well. Um, it, it's a fairly new field in the omega-3 story, but changing mitochondrial membranes are uh, the, the fluidity, flexibility, uh, allows the, the enzymes and the other proteins that are embedded in those membranes uh, to operate more smoothly. It's kind of like having the right amount of oil in your car. It just moves more smoothly. Yeah, one of the researchers that I interviewed recently um, shared that, you know, that obviously most people who know who study these know that they increase membrane fluidity. But what he shared with me was that the they actually form structural stability factors because unlike a saturated fat or a mono, which are mostly long, simple ch chains, and you, you can compile many of them like in a rope, uh, they don't, they, they're not bulky. So they, they, they really can't form these like cement, like, like I guess rebar and cement, you know, that, that provides some stability to the membrane. Yeah. Yeah. There are some sections of the membrane, which, which researchers have figured out, they call them lipid rafts, like a raft on the ocean. So the, I, we think of a membrane as a very homogeneous, boring, uh, uh sheet like an envelope uh, that is in a, a letters in. But a membrane is much, much more complicated than that. Uh, and there are sections of the membrane, the lipid or the raft, where a lot of met metabolic processes take place. And the omega-3s can improve the function of those rafts. If, 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 right, if they're loaded with monounsaturates or saturated fatty acids, the fatty acids are tight. They stick, the, the membrane is stiffer in that area and the uh, enzymes and the transporters and the uh, <clears throat> other proteins that move through that membrane can't do it as well. Uh, so they're not as efficient in what they do. But the omega-3s, because they're big and chunky and bulky, they spread it out and <clears throat> give it, um, that's at least our, our mind picture of it. They make more room for the proteins to do their thing. All right. So you know, you've provided the assertions that the benefits of omega-3s and, you know, you've got a lot of data to support that. So then the obvious recommendation is, well, how do we increase our omega-3s? And this is where I think it's vitally important to understand the details, because if you fail to do that, you're going to make yourself much worse, in my view. So I'd like to see what, you, what your views are. So the, I believe the market for fish oils is like $3 billion. It's a pretty big market. And most of those, in my mind, should not be used for human, human consumption. They're, they're synthetic. They never existed in nature before. They're, they're ethyl esters, uh, which is absolutely different than the triglyceride form of omega-3. Uh, and there's, in my mind, there's a huge question if, if, if the benefits outweigh the risk. So why don't you give us your perspective on this? Because this is your field. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and you're right. The 
the, the natural form of omega-3 in fish, there's really two uh, natural forms. The omega-3s are found in, in triglycerides, which we classically think of as oils. Um, and they're typically about one, a triglyceride has three fatty acids on each molecule. Typically in most fish um, that are rich in omega-3, there'll be one of those three will be EPA or DHA, so about 30%. Uh, so that's the triglyceride. The other molecule that omega-3s are naturally found in, in fish is phospholipids. Phospholipid is what really makes up the primary membrane of cells uh, and the omega-3s, and there's two spots for fatty acids on a phospholipid. Uh, and it, it depends on the fish, but it typically about maybe 20%, 20-30% of the phospholipids have EPA and DHA. But those two forms are natural. Um, like a, I picture salmon, you get both triglyceride and phospholipid in uh, when you eat a, a salmon steak or any, any fish that's oily. Um, high omega-3 fish. Uh, the ethyl ester, which you mentioned, is a completely synthetic product. That's true. It's, it, it starts as a raw fish oil. That's where that molecule comes from in the first place. But it, it gets taken into a factory. The fatty acids get chopped off of the triglycerides. Um, typically, we're just starting with triglyceride. Chopped off the fatty acids, throw away the monounsaturates, throw away the saturates, leave the omega-3s by themselves. They have to be hooked to something, typically. Um, and so the favorite thing is to hook, instead of a glycerol, which is what they're naturally hooked to, which is a, an alcohol, they pick ethanol, an alcohol. Everybody knows that one. Um, and they put an ethyl, an ethyl group on the fatty acid, on the omega-3s, and then they are chemically able to separate all the non-omega-3s from the omega-3s once they're in that form, and they can concentrate them and put them in a pill. So all the pharmacologic, pharmacology or pharmacological products that are omega-3 based are ethyl esters uh, because they can get more, they can cram more molecules into one capsule. That was the thought. Um, and that's been used for you know, those have been used since uh, Omicor came out, probably in the mid mid nineteen nineties. Um, but you're you're right; they're not, they're, they're not natural. Uh, I guess there there's debate on how uh, effective. I, we do know that if you take the ethyl ester uh, on an empty stomach, you're not really going to absorb it. They're very poorly absorbed. Uh, they their absorption can be improved if you eat, take the ethyl ester with a fatty meal, a meal that's got some fat in it, because that will stimulate the digestive juices and allow some of it to be absorbed. But it's not the best form for absorption. Um, triglyceride and phospholipid are much better forms for absorption. Yeah. And well, what, are the what are the concentrations, relative concentrations of the amount of omega-3 in natural forms? Is it like maybe two-thirds triglyceride and a third phospholipid? Um, in salmon? Um, no, it, just in general. And I know oh, there's a range, but I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah no, I think it's about in, in natural forms in, in, in fish, uh, it would be about 50-50, in triglyceride. Uh, yeah, now, because they, they don't store a lot of fat. I mean, they store some. Of course, cod stores all their fat in their liver, 
not in the muscle. So cod, fish, the, the, it's a very low-fat fish, unless you're eating the liver or extracting oil from the liver. But salmon, mackerel, herring, sardines, uh, those sorts of fish uh, do store their fat in their muscle. And so it's a, kind of a mixture of, of, of roughly 50-50 triglyceride and phosphate. All right. So for the last three decades, we've had the industry has developed the capability of providing us with fish oils in ethyl ester form. And as you said, it's somewhat controversial, but has anyone, your group or others, examined the data out there? Because, I mean, this is a long time. I mean, and I know it takes a long while to do these studies, but certainly someone's looked at evaluating these ethyl esters with respect to consequences on all-cause mortality and, and morbidity. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the first study that kind of set, set us all on fire was reported right around the, the year 2000. Um, mm-hmm. It's called the GISI Prevention Study. GISI, G-I-S-S-I, is an acronym for a group of Italian cardiology researchers. So they have a group, and they did a study with uh, what was then known as Omicor. Uh, now it's Loveza, uh, but it's an ethyl ester. And they gave one capsule a day of the this ethyl ester to people who had a heart attack, survived it. And how many milligrams of uh, omega three was that? Eight hundred and forty milligrams. That's EPA a, plus DHA. Yeah, so that's one capsule. Um, and they reported <clears throat> after ex- this was it took probably about uh, through two or three years of follow up. They reported a, a tremendous drop in not only cardiovascular death, but all-cause mortality. Um, and that was with this ethyl ester product. Now, there was no placebo. It was a it was usual care versus this one capsule of Lovesa. Okay. And it was more. funded by the people selling the product. <laughs> Imagine well, that. Imagine that. It's, I mean, it's, yeah, I guess that's... conflict of interest. Well, it's, yeah, every drug is a conflict of interest, right? <laughs> Everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But they they were trying to get a approval for selling this as a pharmaceutical. And, and the reason they want to do that instead of selling it as a supplement is you get insurance reimbursement. For pharmaceuticals, you don't get them for dietary supplement, even if it's the exact same molecule. Right. So that's it's, it's driven by a desire to make a profit. And Pronova was the company at the time that was doing that. Um, and that's what they did. And that tradition has been continued. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, there have been several studies where they've used Lovesa or Omicor um, or, or other similar ethyl esters that did not show a benefit, didn't show any harm, but just didn't show the benefit. Uh, that was seen in those early JISI studies. Um, and so that's dampened enthusiasm uh, pretty much after 2010, over the last maybe 15 years. Several studies have been reported that were not not successful, um, ex- with one exception, which is called the Reduce It study, which we used an ethyl ester, but it was an ethyl ester just EPA only. Um, this is a product that was originally developed in Japan um, and found its way into uh, a more worldwide uh, uh, distribution. And the company Ameren, uh, an Irish company, picked up this drug and decided to test it in people at high risk for heart disease. And they gave them four grams a day of 
of EPA ethyl esters, no DHA, and uh, versus a, a placebo, which has been quite controversial, whether it really was a placebo or not. Um, they used a thing called mineral oil, uh, unabsorbable uh, oil. That you, you need a placebo of some kind. You need some kind of a control group to compare. And they found after five years that there was a marked like 25% reduction in cardiovascular risk, uh, risk for total mortality, risk for um, uh, non-fatal heart attacks. Fatal, it was a, a, a slam dunk, great outcome. Surprising, I think, to many people. Um, but there it was, uh, the, and it looked very good for the omega-3 space. And the FDA has given that company a, uh, approval for an indication to give it to reduce risk for cardiovascular disease. Previous to that, the only real FDA-approved indication for omega-3 pharmaceuticals was uh, you had to have very high triglyceride levels. And that's what they're for. Um, and, you know, of course, doctors can prescribe things off-label if they want to. Uh, and so they could be prescribed for other reasons, but that's the FDA approval. So Amarin for its product, Vasipa, the EPA uh, only ethyl ester, um, they got an, an appro approval for cardiovascular disease reduction. The controversy around that has been, um, did the did the omega-3 product actually lower risk or did the placebo increase risk for events? And that's been hotly debated. Uh, of course, if your, if your placebo really is harmful, it will look like you're, even if your drug does nothing, it will look like it's doing great because it's doing better than the placebo, which is supposed to be neutral. Uh, well, mineral oil, has, uh, there is considerable evidence now that at least some of the apparent benefit, it, probably not all, but some of the apparent benefit of the EPA ethyl ester was uh, derived from a worsening outcome in the placebo group. Yeah, mineral oil is not a food. <laughs> it is not a food. It could only do bad things to you. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, right, you're taking four grams, almost a teaspoon of this stuff a day for five years. I mean, yeah, this yeah. Is a, that's just not natural at all. <laughs> Nothing close. Yeah. yeah, most likely, you know, it's going to contribute to some fat, uh, fat soluble mineral and vitamin deficiencies is going to just excrete them out of the body. And they talked about also many of these people are on statins. In fact, I think everybody was on a statin because they were all high risk for cardiovascular. So that would uh, potentially maybe dissolve the, prevent the statin from being absorbed well too. But that, I mean, there's evidence on both sides. It's a, it's a hotly contested issue, but it, there's a cloud hanging over uh, the reduce it study um, that, you know, and uh, unfortunately, yeah, I mean, DHA tends to get villainized, vilified, excuse me, um, by the folks who, yeah, right. But I, I think DHA is great. I think you need both EPA and DHA. So you can certainly make a strong argument for that, but I, I don't know that you can make the argument and extend it to most supplements, especially synthetic supplements. I think there's pretty good... Uh, and by that name, ethyl ester. Ethyl ester, yes. Because yeah, I, I, another, you know, if we keep running down the different forms of omega-3, the, uh, of course, krill oil is, is a, an important uh, contributor to the omega-3 space. And that's a natural product. Mostly, 100% natural. Mostly phospholipids. Yeah, mostly phospholipids. Right. That's good. 
And then there's these things called restructured triglyceride or re-esterified triglycerides. So they're omega-3 products that are uh, back in the triglyceride form, but they've been put that put that way uh, by a chemical company that is has thrown away the non-omega-3 fatty acids and stuck the omega-3s back on this three-carbon glycerol backbone. So you really can't call it natural. The triglyceride is a natural product, but a three, a tri-omega-3 triglyceride is not a natural product. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It, it, is it bad for you? I don't think so. Um, but to, uh, if, if you want to be picky, it, there's only krill oil or, or phospholipids and triglycerides, natural triglycerides that are, are, are unmolested by, uh, well, I guess you can't even say that because there are certainly the cleaning up process when you get raw fish oil. Nobody's nobody's putting raw fish oil into capsules. They have to be cleaned up. Um, yeah, they have to be. Yeah, yeah, toxins that are in the ocean. So that has to right. be. Well, and there's some odors that are not very pleasant either. That um, Oh, yeah. It, and those yeah. odors, and actually the human nose is a very sensitive instrument, even probably yeah. more sensitive than some of the, the tests they use to detect them. But oh. these uh, peroxidized lipids, rancid <laughs> lipids, are very dangerous to health. And that's yeah. one, of the, one of the problems with omega-3s and actually any PUFA, polyunsaturated fatty acid, is that these double bonds are highly susceptible to oxidative damage. And you have to be absolutely committed to the highest level quality to protect that protection. Usually vitamin E is, is, is a pretty good solution, but you know, it's got to be followed through the whole chain. Yeah, right. And they exclude oxygen, exclude air from the whole processing chain. Do it under nitrogen, which is not reactive. So yeah, the, the best the best producers are very careful, and it makes the products more expensive because it just takes more more effort and more expensive chemicals to do it. But yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a little bit easier to do with krill because it. You know, the, it's in the phospholipid form. And but anyway, there, there, that's another rabbit hole I want to go down now. But one, one of the potential variables that contributes to the benefits that you're, you've described earlier from the omega-3 supplementation or increase in the diet would be two substances or resolvins and protectins or group of substances. And... I, I am confused as to how those are derived. Are they actually in the fish, the oil initially, or are they derived metabolically from the, the original fatty acids? Uh, it's kind of both. There, there's a, a whisper. There's a small amount of some of these results. These are metabolites of EPA and DHA uh, that are, can be found in fish oils. Um, but the, it's, you know, less than 1%, for example, <clears throat> most of it is made in your body on demand. If you've got the omega-3s, EPA, DHA in your, in your membranes, in your cells, uh, when you have an inflammatory insult of some kind, uh, these molecules are, are synthesized, the resolvents, protectants. Uh, there's a, a few other classes, but just the general idea is these are molecules that uh, you're designed to uh, actually resolve, hence the name, resolve the inflammation. Um, there, we used to think that when you have an inflammatory uh, insult, you have the inflammatory response, 
And then it somehow it just goes away. <laughs> it just goes away, uh, which is not a very scientific explanation of anything. Uh, and uh, Charlie Surhan really at, at Harvard has been the leader in discovering that it doesn't just, inflammation doesn't just go away. It actually gets driven down. It gets resolved. It gets pushed. And it's the, these omega-3 products that are doing that pushing, that are driving those uh, inflammatory processes back into, into a quiet state. Uh, so if you haven't got the omega-3s, the, the inflammatory response stays longer and it becomes a little more, more chronic. And that's, I think, the problem. So do you think it's the resolvers and protectins that are metabolized to, that produce this suppression of inflammation? Or is it more the prostaglandins and the costanoids that are derived from the omega-3s that, that are responsible for lowering inflammation? Or is it both? I, I think it's um, more the resolvins and protectins. Those are the molecules that are more so than the, the cyclooxygenase products, the, the, the prostaglandin-type products, uh, which are also important. Um, there, there are so many different metabolites from EPA and DHA, and they all were learning the, the, the dance. It's, it's a concert. It's an orchestra. <laughs> all these molecules doing different things on demand. Uh, some of them are, are suppressing the, uh, even the, the receptors on the cell that will uh, sense an inflammatory uh, action happening in the body. And if you suppress that action, the cell doesn't make inflammatory. So it actually suppresses the inflammatory response, which is good to a point, um, as well as once inflammation starts, the omega-3s will suppress it to keep it from getting out of hand. Um, but it's the resolvents and protectants that are doing that latter thing. They're actually actively suppressing um, or, or reversing. I wasn't aware of that. That's that interesting. It, Interesting, and in, in in especially in light of the fact of information we learned about linoleic acid, I published a narrative review on LA in July and nutrients. And one of the, yeah, one of the reviewers gave me feedback and said, "Listen, because I purported one of the mechanisms was in de was it actually increases inflammation, and that this, this speculated consensus is that linoleic acid is converted to arachidonic acid, which is pro-inflammatory." And then he, he, he responded with this review that showed that the actually conversion from LA to arachidonic acid is pretty minimal contribution to arachidonic. And, and, and I couldn't dispute it. I mean, it was solid evidence. So then I just capitulated and said, okay, well, that's not the mechanism. And just like you referred to with the resolvents and protectants, it's the, the, the metabolites that are so key. Just, and, and in LA, it's the metabolites that destroy your health, which are typically the, most of the metabolites, which, which are referred to as oxalams or oxidative linoleic acid metabolites, which like 4-hydroxynonolol, methoxymalondialdehyde, uh, uh, glyoxyl, methoxyglyoxyl, you know, th there's hundreds of these toxic reactive aldehydes that get spun off from LA that make it so perniciously dangerous. Uh, so, in so excess. I mean, does that I'm happen sorry? in people? Does that happen in Oh, yeah, the 100%. No, it, it, you don't have to have McDonald's French fries to get these things. No, no. It, they're there if you, if you heat up the oil. But no, this, is, this spontaneously happens at, at biological temperatures, for sure. Unless, unless they're protected well with vitamin E, you know, then, then that, that peroxidation is pretty radically reduced. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, now, I mean, what's I, I'm glad you brought this. It's an interesting topic because um, one of these this group of researchers that are the Force Coalition. We've looked at blood omega three levels predicting outcomes, right? Uh, health outcomes. We also have done looked at the same studies, the same blood samples, the same people looked at the linoleic acid levels in the blood. Um, and we've asked the same question. I mean, the, by, by, the, by blood, you mean the red blood, the red cell membranes. Well, it, it can be plasma linoleic acid, plasma phospholipid, or red blood cell. They, they all kind of like the omega threes. They correlate with each other pretty. Okay, much. They, so even this, so the serum pores with membrane fatty acids too. It would seem to me it would be changed based on your last meal. Well, uh, yeah. And, and linoleic acid in the, in, the, in the blood, of course, can only come from diet. As you know, it's an essential fatty acid. Um, but it's particularly in the West, as, as you know, we've had a lot of linoleic acid in our diet for decades. That's a profoundly serious understatement. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so what you eat today, it really isn't going to bump your linoleic acid. It's kind of buffered already, so it doesn't really change very much day to day. Um, in fact, it's well, you just alluded to the point that the conversion to arachidonic acid is very minimal, like 1%, something like that. And when they use radioactive tracers to look and see how much shows up. Um, so the linoleic acid and arachidonic are arachidonic is pretty well regulated by systems, how much level we should have. But um, when we've looked at linoleic acid levels in the blood, I mean, the hypothesis would be, you know, if, if the idea that a linoleic is bad for you, higher levels of linoleic in the blood should predict long-term adverse health outcomes. That, that would be a reasonable hypothesis. And yeah. And so when we've looked at that, we've looked at it for two different diseases, for cardiovascular outcomes, whether it's death or events. And we've looked at it for uh, developing diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And in both cases, the higher levels of linoleic acid, the lower the risk for those two diseases. And so I'm, you know, so it's the opposite of the idea that it's bad for you. It's, it looks like if it was omega-3, we'd say they're good for you because higher levels of omega-3 associated with better health outcomes. So now we're finding higher linoleic acid levels in the blood are at least associated with better or lower risk for heart disease or diabetes. And so you've got to think, well, okay, how do you explain that? <laughs> what do you do with that? Um, how, how do you square that with some of this chemical evidence that you're talking about? Um, some of these metabolites. That well, and epidemiological evidence too. I mean, the, the, the incidence of heart disease has increased over 5 million times. Heart attacks were essentially an unknown commodity in the United States. There was no, the first report of heart attack in the United States was 1912. And now it's 250,000 people dying a year. And yeah, there's a lot of variables that contribute to it. But, but for me, the evidence is beyond abundantly clear. It's the industrialized processed seed oils produced in the U.S. Civil War started being produced then. And then it gradually increased. So I, you know, that, that, that study site is intriguing for sure, but I'd like to dive into details because I'm, Virtually close to 100% convinced that it's wrong, 100% wrong. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, let me. I'll, I'll send you the papers. You can have a look at them, see what you, what you think is is. Uh, but it, yeah, it does require some explanation. If 
we're going to hypothesize that linoleic is bad for you. I mean, it's certainly possible that seed oils could be bad for you. It doesn't have to. No, let me be more precise. Excess linoleic acid. Your body absolutely requires linoleic acid. If you didn't have it, you would have, have severe health problems. But it's almost impossible not to get enough because it's in every food. And, and it's, it's questionable whether or not to call it essential. Yes, I mean, technically it is because your body cannot make that from scratch. But if you're eating food to stay alive, you're going to have more than enough. So is it really essential? Yeah. Yeah. I guess if you're getting doing the, the pure nutrition definition. Yeah. Yeah. It had to be, but it's essential, right? But you, pragmatically it's not. Yeah. It's, it's there everywhere. Right. Yeah, and everywhere. what would you, what would you recommend the, the percent of calories as a little Well, lake? it's not me. I mean, even the conservative hyper conservative uh, RDAs are 2% of total da da daily calories. The average person is at 25%. I mean, this is a highly damaging fatty acid that, you know, just is, is taking an excess. I mean, so most, the bulk of that is industrial processed seed oils. And I don't think any rational scientist or, or someone committed to integrity is going to deny that we should be not, we should be avoiding industrial processed seed oils like the plagues, unlike what the American Heart Association was recommending in the 50s and still to this day, because when you increase seed oils, you actually lower cholesterol levels, which they believe is a healthy thing. But that, that's a whole other area we don't have to, time to go into now, but it's not. That's, it's complicated. It is complicated for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, no, I mean, the, I guess I would push back on your 25% of calories as linoleic acid. Um, I think the evidence is more like it's 6 or 7% in America. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, tissue biopsies are 12 to 13%. Well, I, I mean, it's dietary intake, not necessarily tissue levels. Dietary intake. Um, I'm sure you can find tissues where it's that high. Um, well, 90, 99% of the fat consumed in the United States in the 19th century was from animal sources. That obviously can include fish, seafood. Today, it's 80 to 90% are from seed oils. Yeah, that's... It's, it's really we've just totally animal. switched it. We swapped it. Animal fat really isn't um, milk, cheese, dairy, uh, beef, yeah, yeah. pork, chicken. Yeah. They've all been... Yeah. That was pretty much the only option people had in the 19th century. And now it's been villainized and demonized. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's right. It's <laughs> saturated fat has been a, has been an interesting topic, as well as dietary cholesterol. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But, but I mean, that, that's the simple data. You know, the data is we went from ninety nine percent to to basically swapping it around all with vegetable oils. I mean, that just ancestry historically and just logically doesn't make any sense that it would have some serious impact, most likely negative on human health. Well, yeah, right. Certainly before you could actually mill grains and press oils out of them, you were just eating the natural oil that was in the uh, kernel of corn or a kernel of wheat, right? There was not much there. And sure. So anyway, we went on a tangent because I'm passionate about this, but, but what I wanted to go get back to, and we started with, is the your affirmation that you're, you're in agreement with that synthetic synth oil, synthetic fish oils are probably not the best idea, and it's certainly controversial and a debate in the field. And so, 
we get we get back to the recommendation. What do you do? What, what is what is the recommendation? How do you get increases omega threes in your tissues? Yeah, and I the question we often get is how much EPA and DHA do you need? Yeah, that's a, that's another good question for sure. To get uh, and so it gets back to the omega three index as your marker of your omega three status, your omega three meter in your in your blood. Uh, most Americans are around four or five percent of EPA, DHA, and red cell membranes. Okay, uh, we think the target ought to be eight, eight to twelve percent, somewhere up in there, at least over eight uh, percent. So the levels are half, at least half of what they ought to be in America. How do you do that? How do you get up there? Um, from our studies, it looks like if you want to go from a five percent omega three index to an eight percent takes roughly 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams a day of EPA, DHA on average. And what ratio of the EPA, DHA? Um, don't, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. Um, I think we always advocate both of them together, whether it's kind of a 60-40 mix or 40-60 mix. You know, just don't do 10 to 90 mix. You know? um, and, and it becomes less of an issue if you're eating whole seafood. Totally. Totally. You get both of them in a fairly, fairly even mix uh, in seafoods, whole seafoods. So roughly that one gram a day is a great target for most people. That's 10 times what the average intake in America is right now. So even a gram a day is doesn't seem like a lot, um, but relative to what we're eating, it's a lot. And that's about what it will take. Um, when you look at a Japanese population where they're, at least historically, um, the traditional Japanese diet, not the current one, which is becoming more and more westernized, sadly. Um, their intake was roughly a gram to 1,200 a day, and their average omega-3 index is about 9 or 10% in those days. Um, so it fits, and the Japanese, uh, it's a great, I mean, you, you can't pin it on the omega-3s, but I like to try. Uh, Japanese do live about four years longer on average than we do, they have higher omega-3 indexes, but they smoke more. They have more hypertension. They have more stress, things that should shorten their lives. But in reality, their lives are actually, they, they live longer, uh, very little heart disease. Um, they do they have strokes um, because they have a lot of salt in their diet and they have high blood pressure. Uh, so you can cause a <clears throat> hemorrh hemorrhagic strokes, but the Japanese experience is certainly part of the one of the pillars of the evidence that omega higher omega three levels are good and safe. Do you think the hemorrhagic strokes might be partially attributed to the increase in the omega threes? Because one of the things they do are antiplatelet or antithrom. Uh, that's true. You know, that right. They would likely increase the bleeding time. And that and that that's a that's been a concern. Um, but when it's been looked at in random in, in clinical trials or in observational studies. Uh, there's no increase in clinically significant bleeding. And we've looked at, uh, we're about to publish a study um, in one of our collaborative things with, you know, like 70,000 people uh, looking at risk, the relationship between omega-3 levels in the blood and risk for stroke. So two kinds of strokes. One is the more common um, <clears throat> stroke where it's a, a atherosclerotic uh, clot. So you have a, a brain infar infarction, a thrombotic stroke. Um, the other kind of stroke is what you're talking about is a hemorrhagic stroke where you bleed. And we actually found reduced risk, higher omega-3 is reduced risk for uh, the, the first kind of stroke, the thrombotic stroke, 
and no difference, no effect on hemorrhagic stroke, whether high or low omega-3 did not increase your risk for uh, it's good most, most of the strokes are thrombotic, so overall, yeah, the winter in the West, right, certainly, sort of like heart attacks right now. Yeah. Interesting. So what do you do personally or recommend personally? It would seem, from my perspective, to get the ideal is to get it from seafood. Now, that's not convenient for a lot of people. Uh, and a supplement might be a wiser choice. So why don't you walk us through your, your interpretation of the data and, and conclusions? Yeah. Um, me personally, we, we try to eat fish. Well, I mean, I live in South Dakota. Okay. So, but you can get fish anywhere. Um, yes, of course. We have Costco here, right? Come on. Get, get, get <laughs> salmon, whatever you want. So we, we, we try to eat fish uh, a couple times a week. Don't always succeed. Um, so I do what a lot of people do. I take a uh, supplement. I take about 1400 milligrams a day, EPA and DHA in my Omega three index is, that, is about is that supplement an ethyl ester. No, it's a restructured triglyceride. Okay, so it's not as we discussed earlier, not totally natural, but a lot closer than an ethyl ester. Right, right. And it does the job. And take it with food. Always take it after a meal, uh, so it's absorbed best. But it sounds like your conclusion is that ideally the whole food or the seafood approach, a clean seafood, of course, you don't want to be eating shark or whale or tuna because of its, its high concentration of heavy metals. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. And that is always the the recommendation. Go food first if you can. But as, as you alluded to, you know, just because you think that's the best way to do it, people, if people don't do it, then you got to give them a plan B. Yeah, it's the same. Th it's the same thing with sunshine. I have not swallowed a vitamin D supplements for 15 years, and my levels are very rarely go below 90, and typically in the summer over 100. But you know, I, I still capitulate and say, listen, this is people don't have the opportunity to live in subtropics like I do, and go outside every day around solar noon. So you know, then they, if they're confined to the indoors and unable to do that, then they probably should take a vitamin D supplement. Yeah, right. It's the same. Right. You got to be practical. Yeah, pragmatic for sure. So, um, where's the best way to get the omega three index? And not the not the plus not the six to three ratio. The omega three index. We're really precise here. As long you can have the ratio if you want it, but we'll give you the index too. That's the one I think yeah, is yeah. actionable. Um, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, omega quant o, o m e g a omega quant quantify dot com. Uh, you can order this test uh, directly. It's a Dried blood spot test set kit is sent to your home. Uh, the basic test for the omega three index is about fifty bucks, I think, um, mm -hmm. and you get a report about five days after it's received in the lab. You should get a report of your omega three status, and I always That's recommend. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I, I love it. I, it's a test test we developed twenty years ago, and we uh, still love to see it in, more in clinical medicine. Love to see it as yeah. common as the cholesterol test. I agree. I think there's a lot more value to it. Uh, and and it can be, it's really, really convenient because you don't have to get your butt out to the a, a lab to get your blood drawn. You, have, you get to draw it yourself. I think is it one spot or two spots on the card? One spot. One, one spot. Okay. One drop. So, yeah, you got to, it has to be a good drop. You got to fill up that circle. But, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to do. I mean, I think we're offering now uh, 
I think you most cards have three spots and you can fill three spots. And then if you decide you want your vitamin D done or your hemoglobin A1C, then we've already got the blood there and we can do it. Um, you can change your mind. But for the yeah, omega-3. What's, what's the charge for the vitamin D? That's also 50. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, because even the wholesale costs for physicians for, and that's the 25 hydroxy D I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, right. that's, that's, that's a pretty good deal actually. Uh, all right. That's it. So if you watch your vitamin D, I think everyone wants you to get their vitamin. Talk about tests as every bit as important as, as cholesterol, if not more would be your vitamin yeah. D. Vitamin D, right. Yeah. Cause right. you can, there's no way you could, just like you, there's no way you know what your blood pressure is. You don't know what your vitamin D level is or your omega-3 level. You just, I right. mean, you can get some idea because you know what you've been eating, but yeah. when it comes to vitamin D, I mean, I guess you know what you've been doing with respect to the sun exposure or swallowing your vitamin D, but it's still, you've got to measure it. The only, it's the only way to know. It's the only way to know. Everybody's so different too. Yeah. 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 Wow. Any other insights you'd like to share with us? <laughs> um, I, I guess, uh, how would you wrap it up? Um, I, I, again, I think the my mantra is the omega three index EPA DHA is what needs to be improved. It needs to be increased. Uh, there's other factors as well. For the, it's not a silver bullet, but it's one thing you can do something about cheaply, safely, easily, quickly, and improve your omega three status. And uh, there is not a disease yet that we've seen that is not benefited from having a higher omega three to reduce risk. So. I'm wondering if you in, integrate a vitamin E recommendation while taking uh, omega-3s or food sources. We, um, we have not. Um, I, I certainly understand the logic of it. Um, that's, that's very reasonable. I guess we've not, I've not seen the um, damage that you're talking about. I have not particularly looked for it. Okay. Uh, or, you know, that's the, the other side. And this is, you know, if you're doing things unnaturally, which certainly taking a synthetic fish oil is, and you're taking it in excess, trying to achieve these benefits you ascribed to, to omega-3s earlier, I mean, it just seems obvious you're going to get damage because you're, you, it's totally unnatural and it, you're pushing the system where it wasn't designed to go. Yeah. And, and there's biochemical solid evidence that this is a potential risk of oxi increasing oxidative damage with, I mean, the PUFAs are, are, I mean, they're essential. You've got to have them, you need them, right. but in excess, the key is in excess is, yeah. is where the issue becomes. Right. And then that becomes obviously a definition of excess. Right. 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 And that's. All right. Well, this is, this has been great. I thank you for all your wisdom and sharing it with and kind enough to do that and help us understand some of the mechanics of it and offering a practical tool to help us assess where we fit on this goal. And it's, and it's relatively inexpensive and, 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 and convenient, which is a, you know, it's a pretty good combination. That's, that's, that's what we hope to do. It's been fun yeah, talking yeah. to you, Joe. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. And all the best. Okay. Take care.